Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be covering, we're going to start with verse 1 and we'll continue, of course, next week. But we're, we're just simply titling this, if you're taking notes, an introduction to Romans. I want us to get introduced to the letter that was written to the Romans. So if, you, if you're there, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, please stand for the reading of God's word. As we read for Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And the word reads as such. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As we dove into this letter, get a new notebook. It's going to be packed with fundamental doctrinal truths that this magnificent letter is going to bring out. And pray for us all that we're faithful to what God intended to say in his word. As we dug into this, I, I, I always had an idea, but I never fully realized the impact that this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the impact that it has had throughout the centuries with some of the great men of God that God has used, scholars and men that were, fundament, that were used fundamentally in the direction of the body of Christ and how much it's been impactful throughout the years. There's an expositor that some of, some of you old G's, you old folk, wise folk might know. Donald Barnhouse, he was, he was one of the pioneers of radio when it comes to the Christian faith. And a great American expositor. And I read different testimonies. And when I, when I read him, he talked about how he saw the church in which he pastured literally transformed. As he went through the book of Romans, he took 43 months going through the book of Romans. And the testimony that came out of that to see the church, not that they weren't saved, transformed by the richness of the letter. This letter to the Romans, and that's just not me. Sometimes it's hard to say because the whole canon of scripture is for for man for the is profitable for man every line every verse every book it's profitable for man for our sanctification but this letter to the romans mostly everyone biblically sound agreed that it's a piece of writing that is so profound in any other writing that man has done including the holy scriptures now, as we march through this, some of these things are going to make some sense. And it's considered to be, by, by many, to be the cathedral of the Christian faith. This letter to the Romans, in digging into the history, and the many men of God that God has used to help guide the church, you think of the great awakening, the, the reformation of the church where the protesters against, against Rome, where Rome was saying, only we can have the word. You cannot handle the word on your own. We've got to read it to you. You cannot have this word yourself. When they begin to be exposed 
to the Word themselves and saw to it that man needs the Holy Scriptures in his own hand. That there's a Holy Spirit that is the teacher of the church. These men that led this protest against the, the incumbent church at the time, so many of them was turned, their faith was turned upside down and their enlightenment was given through this letter. The letter at its heart is explaining the good news of God, the gospel of God in a systematic manner. One of the great cathedrals of a written document that it is. It has guided the church. It has, for the Western culture, it was the paradigm shift for Christianity as we know it today. So much so, the book of Romans, when man assembled the canon of scriptures, we've covered several times, when they began to put the canon of scripture together in the order in which we have it today, it was placed as a gateway that leads into the letters of the New Testament. If we go to the New Testament, let's talk a little bit about this book of Romans. There are five identified known writers of the 21 New Testament letters, or you may have heard them as the epistles. This is an epistle. The book of Romans is a letter. It's one, and there's 20 other, 20 other of these letters that make up the, the New Testament. 27 books, I believe, in the New Testament. 21 of them are these letters. And out of these 21, we, we, we know for sure that we have five authors. And now this is only considering, for you Bible scholars that are out there, going to try to correct me, only considering that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is one of these five. If it wasn't one of these five, there's actually six authors of, of the letters of the New Testament. There's Paul, there's James, there's Peter, there's John, and then there's Jude. Five of them. 21 letters. And out of these 21 epistles that we have in the New Testament, Paul himself wrote 13, over half of those letters. Paul! A man that wasn't even, a man that was out to kill the church. A man that was never seeking God. He was seeking to destroy the works of God on earth. I don't know why I'm yelling at you, but I got to calm down a little bit. We ain't even gotten to the letter. This man, Paul, 13 of these 21 letters he wrote, over 81 chapters in total he wrote. So this is, this is who God used, the Holy Spirit used to record this letter. Very significant, very monumental man that has impacted this world, that God had used greatly. Most of his letters were written to churches. There's a few that were written to pastors, the pastoral letters that he wrote. If you want to know anything about the shepherds that we covered out of Second Peter, you go to, the, you, you go to Paul, the Pauline letters. The pastoral letters would teach us and guide us when it comes to shepherding the church. 
When Paul wrote this letter, he was already a mature man. He was in his late 50s. And he wrote this letter, we don't know exactly, but we know it's somewhere between the 55 and 56 A.D. This is when he wrote this letter. We're, we're pretty sure within that year's span, somewhere between 55 and 56 A.D., Paul wrote this. And one thing we got to understand from now, because we're, we're going to come into it who knows where, maybe next year, but Paul wasn't the one that actually put pen to paper on this letter. He used a man, a friend of his named uh, Tertius. And he used Tertius to write this letter for him. And we know this because Tertius, at the end of the letter, finds a portion of his writing to slip this fact in. This historical fact was put in put into play. In Romans chapter 16, verse 22, he said this, Tertius, he says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Yeah, he, he'd been working diligently and under the, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul, he'd been working hard and threw that in there for history's sake. This letter that, that was written to the church in Rome by Paul, let's just stick with that, was written from Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was the Hollywood of the ancient world. It was the vanity fair. It was the, the, the sinful, self-indulgent capital of the world at the time. So as Paul was writing this letter, it makes sense on some of the things Paul is going to be reflecting upon in this letter. As he had to have been exposed and looked upon this city of Corinth. And seeing the depravity of man, the sickness and sinful condition, the helpless condition of man. He orchestrated this letter with his friend Tarsus while staying at a house of a businessman named Gaius. They were staying at this man's house, this very wealthy businessman, and this is where he decided to write a letter. His intention was to make it to Rome and had not been able to get there. So we saw to it, as we're going to see, the umption to write his brothers in Rome a letter. At this time in history, before and a while afterwards, Rome was the capital of the world. Rome was the place for planet Earth. Rome was a capital of influence for the rest of the civilized world. You weren't any kind of scholar unless you came out of a school of Rome. You weren't of anybody of any kind of sizable influence unless you were dispatched from Rome. Rome was the capital. Rome was the center, the hub of influence of the current world. Well, in this hub, in this capital of influence, there was a body of believers that, were, that had formed and were growing in this capital of Rome. And Paul recognized through the leading of the Holy Spirit that these believers were in dire need of a Christian document. They didn't have the canon of scripture as we know it today. They didn't have access to the scrolls. It was all through verbal communication. 
And so he recognized this. He'd been, he, his heart was in Rome. He was a Roman citizen himself. And he says, I can't get there fast enough. I've got to write this letter. I've got to make a document. So, somewhat of a statement of faith was needed for this newly found body in Rome. Because as they were growing, they were amongst a, commu- a community of influence. And that community of influence wasn't all for the glory of God. It was for the glory of man in their pride that they were in. And it began to, to try to infiltrate the church in their thinking. And he saw to it, told, we've got to sit down, I've got to write a letter now before I can get there. So we sat down with Tarshish and to begin to correlate and to write this letter to the body of Christ in Rome. And his intention was to write this letter and send it off as we're going to see and have this letter passed around to the churches that were in Rome. And his purpose in doing this was to eliminate any misunderstanding that they may have been receiving from the culture that they were in. Remember, Peter said they were aliens in a foreign land that was contrary to their belief in one God. They were contrary to the belief of the true God. And before that culture can overtake the believing body, Peter, Paul wrote down this, this letter and sent it out to be passed around so that there would be no ambiguities concerning or regarding the gospel of God. He wanted to make it clear. He wanted a constitution for the Christian faith. This is the thought in which this Holy Spirit instilled into Paul to write to this church. This is why it's such a monumental letter in the Holy Scriptures. Paul saw to it that this church that was forming in Rome, that was a a culture that influenced the world, would be founded on solid ground of the gospel of God himself. The meat of of the book is the gospel. The meat of the book is to show man his depravity, to show us, even as believers, our helplessness without the sacrificial work of Christ. And how we are made righteous by faith and faith alone. In Christ, in Christ alone. And not by any works. Not by anything that we did. But by putting our faith in Christ. And then he gives that foundational truth. He gives doctrinal truth. He gives the truth of the gospel. And then he shows us the truth of the gospel and sanctification. And what that gospel amounts to in the life of every believer. He poured this in this letter for 16 chapters. And I am looking forward, church, not only for myself foremost, to be changed and sanctified and to give God more honor than I could ever thought I can give Him. I'm looking for us as a body to be transformed to the glory of God as the Holy Spirit deposits these truths as he intended to do for the church in Rome. I hope we're ready. So he began to write this document. Sat down and began to be led by the Holy Spirit. Ever since then, 
55, 56, that year. This letter to the Romans has shaped Christian thought concerning the gospel. It's what's molded the gospel message. We see the message of the gospel in the book of Genesis, all the way through redemptive history, all the way to the book of Revelation. We see the grand story of redemptive history. Romans condenses that into one letter. And I'm looking forward to the truths of Almighty God that are going to come forth to transform our lives. Not our, only our lives as individuals, but our life as a church. This letter is made up of five sections. And there's some, depending on who, what material you get a hold of, that even go further, because it really could be. But the majority agree, scholar, you know, biblically sound scholars, categorize it into five different categories. But they all agree that really the meat and bones of the letter is found in three categories. You can divide the book of Romans into three main parts, if we want to call them that. The first part is chapters 1 through 8. That's the first part. And what the first part, chapters 1 through 8, Paul covers doctrine. Doctrine is the teaching of Holy Scripture. The truths that God has given to mankind. They're doctrinal in kind. All eight chapters cover doctrine. And in this first section of, ver of chapters 1 through 8 that are are doctrinal in kind, we see the sinner exposed in all of his ugliness. We see the wretchedness and ugliness of mankind that explains why this world is in the condition that it is in and why we see the things happening that we wonder how could someone even fandom to do something so evil the first eight chap the, the, the first eight chapters would get into the depthness of the sin of man Romans chapter 1 verse 18 just to grab a gist of what we're talking about here Romans 1:18 says this for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and if you continue on with chapter 1 the remaining of the chapter of chapter 1 you see what we what we are going to find out ourselves as we march through this we're going to see the sin the depthness of the sin of mankind we're going to see it exposed like nowhere else in the entire bible you won't see a condensed application of the depthness of man's sin more than you find in chapter 1 of the book of romans this is what we're going to find out. Paul gives us a summary of the depraved soul that every human being born after Adam is born with. He gives us a summary in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then, after he's gone through this whole spiel of depravity of man and how sinful man is regardless of what he jacket he puts of holiness on the outside how sinful and dirty man is what then are we any better than they not at all he's talking to the believer not at all 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Wait a minute here. What in the world is he describing here? Paul depicts in these chapters the awful weight of sin that humanity is enslaved to. We are enslaved to sin as human beings. And he begins to spell this out as we're going to see. And the point he's trying to make to mankind and to the church is that no matter how moral or religious man can try to be on his own, how morally correct and how good and good deeds and a good job and friendly and loving as he can try to get, outside of faith in Christ, no one, not even one, is righteous before God. Today's me society, it's all about me. They need to read this. Today's self-righteous religious person, they need to read that. We as saints need to be reminded of this fact to keep us grounded in the truth of Almighty God. The only righteousness church that pleases God is the righteousness of Christ. Not what you do. We're going to get somewhere here in a minute. It's relied upon Christ. Christ is the only righteousness that pleases God the Father. Humanity does not receive the righteousness of Christ by trying to keep moral standards. You cannot obtain the righteousness of Christ by being involved in your church, by giving all your money to the church, by being there every single time the doors are open. That does not make one righteous. That does not make one receive the righteousness of Christ. We do not receive the righteousness of Christ by rubbing it off the seats of our church attendants. Because we've punched our spiritual time clock, which we need to be here. We need to sit under the preach word. We are commanded in the word to clearly meet with one another in corporate worship, period. Corporate worship is not at home watching it on the computer or hearing it on the radio or watching it on TV. That is not the biblical view of church attendance. Wish it was, I can be at home with my PJs, with my feet kicked up, with the remote. The righteousness of Christ isn't bestowed upon because of your loved one that is a faithful servant. Not because of your parent, not because of the person you live with, not because they've been praying for you, grandma has been praying for you all your life. This is not how the righteousness of Christ is instilled upon a person. 
As we are going to go through chapter 4, it will show us that one's righteousness simply comes by placing their faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we're going to see, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The intimacy, the being enemies of God has been restored. We have now a peace with God. It clearly says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in, in, in chapter 1 verse 18, the letter starts off with the wrath of God. Against sinful mankind, every single human being that was born after Adam is, is a subject of the wrath of God. And he goes from the wrath of God and then he continues on, as we're going to see, with the peace of God. And we're going to see Paul get, we're going to see Paul get into what turned the wrath of God to the peace of God. The good news of God, the gospel of God, what turned wrath into peace. And Paul's going to break this down for us and how it was the sacrificial death of Christ that has, that, that has satisfied the wrath of God. It's that sacrificial death that has put satisfaction at the judgment seat of God. Therefore, justifying the whosoever that will place their faith in Him. We're going to see this focus and we're going to see this unfold through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that justification is a, is a word that Paul uses quite frequently in his letter. Uses it a number of times. He, it's one of his favorite words, justification. And we're going to see him unpack what that means. And simply this, let me give you just a little hint so you can do a little homework as we're going to run into it quite a bit. Justification is simply this, church, is the act of God in which he declares the believer righteous. He declares a sinner that believes, he declares them righteous. He, he pronounces righteousness upon a believing sinner. Understand that sinner. He declares someone righteous that is still a sinner. You're going to have to write that down. You're going to have to chew on it for a little bit because it's going to take a little bit to understand that. Well, the beauty, Paul's going to break that down for us. That is the most glorious truth. The golden nugget of the good news of God is that while we are still unworthy, while we are still sinful people, that God has declared us righteous. Regardless of how you acted this morning when you got up. Yeah, God saw you. Regardless of how you're going to act when you get home and the things that are come out of our mouths and the thoughts that come out of our thinking process, regardless of that, God has declared you righteous before God. Oh, Lord, you go. We might just have to dive into it now. I don't know. We're going to find out that the believer is declared righteous. We are made completely righteous at the end of the age when we see Him face to face. That's when we will become righteous. Until then, we've been declared righteous before God because we are still sinners. If anyone doesn't believe that, then you're, the Bible calls you a liar, then go back to the Scripture. These first eight child, we got a whole, I gotta get, I gotta get to verse one. So hold on. Hope, maybe some of y'all got, if you don't, you can get with, um, K, 
Kevin, he can get you one of those Samsung ovens. You can put, uh, put the heat down on the pot roast because it's going to sit there for a while this afternoon. We're going to get you out of here. So we know that three parts. Let me get back to the script. The first part is de- dealing with doctrinal truths. Doctrinal truths of the condition of man. And how the wrath of God has been, has been turned to the mercy and justification of God and how that takes place. But chapter 8, let me just say this, and I hope you understand. All the word is valuable. But chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament when it comes to the believer. We're going to find out that after we march through, if we make it through, if the Lord tarries, as we make it, march our way through chapters 1 through 7, we're going to be struck with an understanding of the helplessness and wretchedness of mankind. We're going to see how really wretched man is and how hopeless this world is without Christ. We're going to see that. But then when we get to chapter 8, we're going to find ourselves that there's triumphal victory in Christ Jesus. As we're torn down and as we're beat up and kicked around and we're, oh, what a wretched person that we are when we do. We're going to get to chapter 8 and realize that there's victory in Christ, that we had triumphed after, off over all of that because of Christ. We're going to find in chapter 8, verse 31 and 33, uh, Paul wrote this, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Oh, my Lord. He who, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Yeah, whoo, that's exactly it, sister. This is the most assuring doctrinal truths that every believer needs to fully understand. We need to fully get a grip of what the Spirit of God is telling us amidst our wretchedness that we have victory in Christ who can make a charge against God's elect. God is for us, church. He is not against us. God accepts us. As ugly as we are, as much as we fail, as hard as it is to get over that hump, God accepts us. God does not condemn us. Only if you've placed your trust and faith in Christ. Every genuine believer is safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. We are safe. He's going to complete the work in which we start. He started in us. And we're going to hit those pearly gates. Good and faithful servant. Hallelujah. That's how much he loves you and is concerned about you. Paul's going to break this down for us. We need to realize this. Who can separate us? As bad as it gets, as ugly as this world gets, as hard as these turmoils and trials that we, we just went through First Peter about, after, as ugly as this world can get for the believer, 
God keeps us. God does not put a charge against us. We need to realize this truth that Paul's going to give us in this letter. Every time we start a new day, who can put a charge against us? Who can be against us? If God is for me, the world can throw whatever it wants to throw at me. God is for me. That's all that matters for me. What a difference it will make in your life as we're going to see these truths come forth in this letter. Now we, 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 we're going to make it through Lord Terry 1 through 8. Then we have a second part, bones, meat of this letter. And that is categorized, you can bundle them up with chapters 9, 10, and 11. And what happens in chapter 9, now Paul begins to shift his focus on the nation of Israel. And we're going to get into the depths on being chosen and adopted by God himself into the family of God. And 9, 10, and 11, in, in, in a roundabout way, deal with the nation of Israel, how it ties into the New Testament church. What we're going to find, I'm looking forward to this. In chapter 9, we're, you, we are going to see the gr- largest condensed dose of the sovereignty of God when it comes to us, the sovereignty of God in our lives from creation to our salvation and to the completion of things. You're going to, we're going to find the greatest condensed dose of the sovereignty of God that you will find in no other chapter in the whole New Testament. Chapter 9 of the book of Romans is that chapter. In chapter 9, there's a portion of it that Paul wrote this. In chapter 9, starting with verse 19 through 21, he says, You will say to, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded, will he not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? He's going to break that down and we're going to see what that means. The the magnificent, glorious truth of the sovereignty of God that we just saw Peter describing to us on how that looks in our lives. And then once we make it through chapter 9 and we're, 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 we're edified and boggled by some of the statements that he's going to make, we come to chapter 10. And what we're going to find in chapter 10, we go from the sovereignty of God in mankind to man's responsibility. So, if bad enough, we just came off the sovereignty, now he's going to be talking about our responsibility. In the midst of God's sovereignty. And something very glorifying happens when you understand the two. We're forced, we're going to be forced to deal with chapter 9 and chapter 10, sovereignty of God and the the will of mankind. We're going to have to deal with that double-sided coin. We're going to have to deal with both sides of that troubled coin. Romans 10, 9-13, we're going to read this when we get to it. It says, now listen to what it says, talking about the responsibility of man. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Clearly giving us a responsibility that we can't just override. We're going to find out. We're not even going to be able to fully explain that truth. We have chapter 9, the sovereignty of God. We have chapter 10, the responsibility of man. And if we make it past those two, which we will through the grace of God, and then we finally get to chapter 11, and we're going to find out from experience in going through chapter 9, chapter 10, we're going to find out the paradox in the two sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we're going to come to a conclusion. That even Paul himself could not wrap his mind around it. But he did not deny it. I don't know how all this works, but I do know that God is sovereign. I know though, I do know that we're responsible for something. Ooh, I already know some of y'all skins already crawling. Look at what he said in Romans 11.33. Un, un, write this down. Write this down, the, the verse. 11, 33-34. We need this. Oh, the depth. He's just talked about the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Now he's in chapter 11. It's still flowing on one scroll. He's going back to what he just covered, the paradox. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are the are his judgments, and how unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who or who became his counselor? After we make it past chapter nine and chapter ten, we will soon realize that we can't fully resolve the two. But we're going to be forced to face it. Some of these perfectionists, especially Peter covered it when he talked to the young men to be subjective to the shepherds of the flock. Because just as it's true today, it was true back then. We can all get rebellious, especially young men that are inspiring the shepherd. You know, this is why he, there's, there's an exhortation given that an elder, a pastor, a leader of the church, a pastor, elder of the church must be a seasoned man, older man. Don't let it be a young man, because young man is still learning. And he's all full of all this in his head. Young men are men, not women. You're a special breed and unique. <laughs> Got to keep myself in good graces. She's out there somewhere. <laughs> Very strong-willed, strong-headed. Very strong-headed. And I wish that some of these perfectionists, some... Some are old too. They think they got this all figured out. These perfectionists who think they got 
sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man all figured out, and they wholeheartedly defend one side of that coin only. They don't want to hear the other side. They're just they're stuck on that one side. You're either stuck on the will of man or you're stuck on the sovereignty of God. That person needs to sit down and prayfully study and read through the help of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 11, 33 through 34. In context. And then you come back and tell me whether you got it figured out or not. Well, if you did, you, you should, you should get, write, write the, the, the Berean group and get this Bible changed. Because Paul got it wrong. The great scholars of the past, you read it up, you look it up, the great monumental men that God has used to form the church as we know it today, including Paul, understand that, that we see sovereignty of God in chapter 9, that we cannot disagree and we've got to believe because it thus saith the Lord. And then we get to chapter 10 and we see the responsibility of man. And then we get to chapter 11 and we all agree how unscrewable are the judgment and judgments and ways of God. I don't understand how it works, God, but I know that you're sovereign in my life. Ain't nothing I did. You didn't, you didn't wait for me to, to decide. To, you, you know, he chose me before this world was even formed. That's the beauty of it. God loves you and chose you. But that does not negate the fact that we must believe. Well, wait a minute, John, you're saying two different things. That's, we're gonna, we're gonna, Paul is going to unfold this for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 5 just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things stop trying to figure it out took me a while to come to grips with that and I'm not denying I'm not standing on one side of the coin let me give you a little bit of biblical advice here. We're going to close this up here in a minute. You know you're in trouble when the preacher says that, right? Let me give you a little bit of biblical advice. Because I know there's those that lean on one, only one side of that coin. Because it is difficult, and I understand why. Learn to live with that double-sided coin. Learn to live with it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Paul is going to unravel all of this, starting with chapter 1. Learn to live with this double-sided coin of the sovereignty of God and man's ability with his own will. Learn to live with it. Let that tension be. You're not going to figure it out. Paul couldn't figure it out. He says, oh my God, I don't even understand all this. Stop trying to figure it out. Line by line. Try net, try not to let the unresolved truths that we run across in Scripture divide us. Don't allow the unresolved truth within, truths within yourself that you come across to keep you up at night. Stop trying to f try to fully figure these things out. How the workings of the sovereignty of God in our lives when it comes to salvation and all of that and how it works with the will of man. You're never going to fully figure that thing out. Listen, you, if you don't, I'm not smart enough, but if there is men that are way smarter, way more educated in me, even than themselves, look at what they think, what they teach on this. They don't even understand it. 
but it's there. When we get to both of these in Scripture, any kind of doctrine or truth in Scripture, believe and declare them both. When we're going to see that double-sided cone, believe them both. Proclaim them both and move on in your sanctification. Don't get stuck there. I realize that just that statement alone is already irritating some of the tension. You already got thoughts and say, well, brother, so, you know, you, you obviously you have the book you're going to go over. Obviously, you haven't read it yourself because it clearly says right there. We can play that game all day long. We're going to see through the help of the Holy Spirit that Paul will address this paradox through the whole leading of the Holy Spirit in this letter to the Romans. And then we've, if we make it past that, which we will, church might be empty by then. But when we get to chapter 12 through 16, what we're going to find, church, is some of the greatest... And mark this down so that when we come to these, your, your, your mind is prepared. You're going to need it because it's going to be over a year when we finally get to chapter 11. You're going to find some of the greatest, most practical, down-to-earth truths for Christian living. He's going to take the good news of God, the gospel of God, and he's going to expose the gospel, the good news of the gospel of God to us. And then he's going to transition over how the good news of the gospel of God translates into Christian living. And he does it in a very practical way down-to-earth way. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, we're going to read, as he said this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what we're going to see here, Starting here in, in, in chapter 11, what we're, in chapter 12, what we're going to see is the bulk of the context of the remaining of the let, letter is no longer necessarily dealing with salvific matters, but it's dealing with one's devotion to the faith. In the closing chapters, we're going to see Paul begin to describe how the believer himself, this, this opening of chapter 12 sets the stage, the context in which the letter is going to close out in. We're going to see how it's, he's going to finish off his letter by describing how the believer is to crawl upon the altar of dedication because of the good news of the gospel of God. Now, what we are called to do is to crawl upon the altar of dedication to the God in which we serve. And how we are to lay ourselves down to be used of the Lord as He seems fit. We're going to find that the problem with easier said than done. The problem with us being a living sacrifice. We're living. We're still alive. Crawling upon the altar of God. The altar of dedication. The problem is being that we're living. We're constantly crawling ourselves back off the altar. We get on the altar of God, we're living a life of dedication, and then the human flesh, the sinful, the, 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 the war that Peter was talking about, we're constantly getting off that altar. We're going to see him deal with this. The exhortations in these final chapters of this letter that we're going to get to in the letter of Romans, is going to help us to crawl upon the altar of dedication of our Lord. It's going to help us crawl upon there and stay on there. And live a life that's pleasing to God. Holy and acceptable unto God. Make this note. 
Paul, as we're going to see as we open up this letter, he puts emphasis on the Old Testament. Now, there is systematically throughout the letters that we've been covering, we constantly see the referral back to the Old Testament, which was what was available at the time as the New Testament was being recorded at the time that these letters were written. Romans 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for, your, for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. As we go through these doctrinal truths of this letter written to the Romans, when we go through the easy ones that are easy to accept and the, and the ones that are hard to accept, we, w- we would begin to learn how to rely on the totality or have our final resting place for what we believe in in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to learn how to take God for what he said. And he makes this a point here as he, as, as he mentions in, in, in chapter 15. He goes on to say this after talking about the Old Testament scrolls are there for, for our benefit. And then he continues with verse 5 and he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, you may be one voice, glorifying God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. And for the remaining of this letter, he, he, what he finishes off with, he addresses a number of particular brothers and sisters in Rome in order, them, in order for them to encourage them to continue in the faith. This is the bulk of the letter. Now we want to dive into it. But for time's sake, we're going to continue next week with verse 1. Amen. (laughs) This magnificent, God-glorifying letter called Romans. We're going to dive right into it next week. Let's pray.